Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kristen Eichhammer. And back in studio with us today is our good friend, Crystal Bottom. Thank you so much for being back with us today. So excited to be here. Well, we are in the final countdown. The Iowa caucuses are over. The New Hampshire primary is over. The South Carolina primary is in about a month on February 24th. I I don't, you know, we we never know, right? You never know going into a primary what's going to happen. But I don't think New Hampshire was that surprising. Trump uh, won New Hampshire. He had about 54.8% of the vote. Nikki Haley earned about 43.7% of the vote. And at least... As of right now, you you still have Nikki Haley saying, I'm in the fight. I'm moving forward. She was very clear about that after uh, her loss in New Hampshire on Tuesday night. The New Hampshire primaries, though, I am just fascinated by them. You know, it's such a small town. I lived, I spent a good bit of my childhood in New Hampshire from the age of 6 to 12. I love the state of New Hampshire. But it, it's a small state. It's a tiny state. There's a ton of towns that are just small. Everybody knows everybody. But some towns are really small, like Dixville Notch. And Dixville Notch is a tiny, tiny town that is about 20 miles from the border of Canada. And they are the first town to vote in the New Hampshire primary. They're like, slogan is first in the nation. And literally, the handful of people, and I do mean handful, the number of Republicans who voted in the primary in Dixville Notch this year was a total of six. They had six people vote. They open their polls at midnight. So they're the very first. The folks all go cast their ballots. And I guess, I don't know, I would... Maybe they all go out to eat together or something afterwards. Like the local, maybe there's not a local diner. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It might be that small. Um, But all of the votes in Dixville Notch went to Nikki Haley this primary. Um, So they they helped her earn that 43.7%. But obviously, uh, Dixville Notch can't be indicative of the entire state of New Hampshire because Trump won. But I was like, wow, that's going to be kind of cool to be one of those six people that everyone is talking about that you were the first to vote in the New Hampshire primary and the first primary in the United States. It's funny. I was talking about this as a total rabbit hole here. <laughs> I was talking about this the other day uh, when we were talking about because Nevada is actually before South Carolina this mm-hmm. year for the first time. And no one, not many are really talking about the no. Nevada uh, primary, but that's it's happening. That's next week, right? Nevada's next week? Yes. Yeah. And um, it's funny because we were talking about Pahrump which is like this tiny little city north of Las Vegas. Mm. And in 2008, it went 100% for Ron Paul. So kind of another one of those funny little anomalies where it's like the entire area was like all in on one candidate. And it's just just fun to track those trends and and kind of see over the years how how they may or may not change. Well, I do wonder how much peer pressure plays in in that tiny, tiny town where you kind of hate to be like the one person that votes for the (laughs) other candidate. And it's like in this, like all six people in Dixville Notch voted for Nikki Haley. And, like, everyone is going to know who you vote for. Like, right. they'll figure it out. It's yeah. like in school when you're, like, voting on, you know, whether to have the lights on or off and you have to put your head down. Like, they don't have that. Look <laughs> <laughs> away. Yeah. Pretty funny. Well, uh, hey, if we ever have any listeners listening from Dixville Notch, give us a shout-out. Well, if you DM us on the Problematic Women Instagram, we will give you a shout-out on the show because I just think it's pretty cool. 
Your, your tiny town is awesome. All right. Well, Kristen, we have lots to cover today. Go ahead. Let us know what we have queued up. Oh, yeah. Up on today's problematic woman, how prepared is America for war? <laughs> that question and how often do you think the, of the Roman Empire should be a meme, <laughs> to be honest. But anyway, we have the data and it's pretty bleak. Plus, it's National School Choice Week. We celebrate by highlighting some of the best modern alternatives to a traditional public education. And are we really as productive working from home as in the office? New data reveals the answer. And as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Women of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find those stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. The Heritage Foundation is, of course, the parent organization of The Daily Signal. The Daily Signal is the news outlet that hosts the Problematic Women podcast. And the Heritage Foundation has a number of researchers that spend a good bit of their time every year just researching America's military capabilities and assessing just exactly how ready we are for war. And I love that we are talking about this on a conservative women's podcast because one of the things that we say here is you sort of think about like, quote unquote, women's issues. And as we love to say, all issues are women's issues. Military strength is an issue that deeply concerns and affects American women and conservative women. And so looking at these ratings... Ooh, it's it's a little discouraging. America overall, our American military uh, ranks as weak. We're we're not doing great. <laughs> and when you look at uh, some of our our enemies and our allies around the world, and you consider, you know, so many of them are at war with each other. There's a lot happening in the news right now. There's a lot of conflict. And it's a, not a great time for America's military to just sort of be mid. Um, we should, if anything, be ramping up, beefing up. So we're going to talk about where we stand on a number of issues, but what the Heritage Foundation Index of Military Freedom and Strength does is it looks specifically at all of the branches within our military. So the Army, the Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Space Force, and nuclear, and it assesses on a scale from very weak to very strong where we stand. Well, none of the branches ranked as very strong, but one, only one, ranked as strong, and that is the Marine Corps. And, Crystal, I was asking you yesterday, you're a little bit more in the weeds of some of these um, aspects, and I was asking you, why is it that the Marine Corps ranks strong? And I thought you had a really good answer. Yeah, so the Marine Corps is unique in the sense that they're ranked on um, they're being measured against a one war requirement rather than two so this sounds a little bit technical but all the other branches are are ranked um, as uh, on their capabilities if we were you know fighting uh, a two front war okay uh, now the marine corps is also a bit smaller it's a little bit more nimble and unique uh, in in what they actually do uh, their requirements are a little bit stricter, some would argue, than Navy, Army, etc. And so they they have a bit of a, a unique population that is attracted to being a Marine. So they, you know, 
have been ranked as strong this year. Um, they were ranked strong last year as well. Mm. The only branch that was. Uh, so it, it's really fascinating to see, you know, as yeah. we balance different global threats. We've got a rising threat in China, obviously Russia, Ukraine, the Middle East. There's there's all kinds of stuff happening in the world. Uh, and it's really disappointing to see that the capacity and the capability, capability of our military has been declining for at least a decade, at yeah. least since the Cold War. Yeah. Well, and you look at each branch, the, the Army is ranked as marginal, the Navy is weak, Air Force is very weak. That is very discouraging. Um, and then Space Force is marginal. Nuclear is also ranked as marginal. So overall, across U.S. military, we're ranked as weak. Um, and Crystal, you mentioned the threats that America faces. So have to do that that threat analysis. Have you all ever been in um, like job, uh, like team trainings, and you do that like threat assessment like, like what are the SWAT threats? or whatever SWAT. it is yeah, yeah. strengths this is weaknesses what makes me opportunities think of that. threats yeah <laughs> but we did that's it what our military should be doing <laughs> yeah Top we're doing down. it for them essentially but the biggest threats that the u.s military faces china russia iran north korea and then non-state actors aka terrorists mm-hmm. um so all of these folks rank in the high threat rate so it goes from severe to low. So they're all kind of in that like number two, just below severe in the high rate. Behavioral threats, I thought this was interesting. Um, as far as behavioral threats, our biggest threat is Russia. Mm. That was interesting to me. And I'm assuming that a lot of this has to do not just with what we're kind of physically seeing in the news, but a lot on the cyber front mm-hmm. of yeah. cyber attacks. And, you know, I... I always wonder, like, how much is happening behind the scenes that we just never hear about, right? Well, I think what's really interesting, and to your point, is the behavioral threats that China's not more of a, for, a hostile. I mean, um, they're ranked rating. as aggressive. Yeah, I <laughs> right? mean, like, you have to understand here the, the, you know, <laughs> lateral rankings, the worst is hostile and the second worst is aggressive and China is in that category. I guess you can <laughs> so. only have one super, I don't know. <laughs> you don't, but, I mean, we definitely have more than one, but yeah, yeah it's nevertheless. Just, it's very surprising just given, you know, what we've seen on the news and to your point, what is really going um behind the on behind mm-hmm. the scenes and um i'm gonna talk about space because i'm just gonna do it <laughs> sorry christian wanted but, to talk about space and she's like i will find a way I to will, talk no, about space. but i mean to your point the air force is very weak technically space force is within the air force but our space presence for sure i i believe and i'm not super familiar with our rankings of the space for u.s mm-hmm. military power mm-hmm. but i believe that a lot of the reason why that is marginal is because of what is going on we we don't totally know what's going on in Mm -hmm. space and air force and space um, are probably of the same function somewhat just because of that space force falling underneath that um but for those behavioral threats and threats to the U.S. vital interests, um, one thing that we talked a lot about at NASA is the need for a space force and everyone laughed for like two years (laughs) and then um, what ended up happening is people discussed the threat of China having satellites following U.S. satellites, like just following right behind them in a lot of cases. And um, I, I never was told specifically what was happening um, 
with those satellites. But, you know, there are satellites up there and we have zero infrastructure. I mean, we have some infrastructure, but really not a ton to, um, you know, if those satellites were to be used for some sort of action, like, I don't know what we would do, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Like, that's why we're building the Space Force. So I think that it's interesting that, you know, we have rated the whole entire military as weak. But just to your point, there's a lot that we're still developing mm-hmm. um, that will be, I think, interesting in the future to see what happens. But also there's just so much we don't know, like those satellite uh, actions, like the choices made in space. We just don't know because we haven't invested enough in that, in my opinion, obviously. Yeah. Well, and then you have to look at the threat capability of some of these nations that we've already talked about, like Russia and China. Russia and China both pose a formidable threat. That's the highest threat level that they can possibly pose to the United States. Mm-hmm. Iran and North Korea are gathering. It just like sounds like <laughs> got a creepy. Yeah. Well, take this. Strength. I was just talking to Dakota Wood about this yesterday, mm. one of the primary authors on the report. Yeah. And he pointed out that just kind of a stat that caps and captures all of this. China's shipbuilding capability is 232 times greater than ours. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's to scary. me, that's kind of a Red flag. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a Formidable red flag. flag. <laughs> but it also kind of captures all of this into kind of one little stat, right? Yeah. Well, not little. It's a big uh, stat. Definitely a big stat. But it's like 232, 232 times bigger yeah. shipbuilding capability than us. And yeah. our Navy is obviously struggling on that front. And so it's like that just kind of paints the picture of the global threat that we face, especially well, with an adversary like China. And my very first thought when you get into these conversations is the why. Like mm-hmm. we, we have the information. We have the data. We know that we're not totally keeping up I love this. with our threats. <laughs> why aren't we doing more to be prepared should yeah. China decide they're going to pull the trigger? Well, okay. I say I love this because I love this question. I don't yeah. love where we're at and what's happening. <laughs> How discouraging the reality Full disclosure. is. <laughs> but if we zoom out, mm. right, on this issue that the index is highlighting, a decade of decline, our military being rated as weak, think about some of the repercussions of that, right? We're seeing the, mili- the military's failure to meet their recruiting goals. I look at that as if, if we zoom out, this is directly related to the millions of young, healthy men dropping out of the workforce in general, right? Oh, wow. Our priorities as a society are completely out of whack, right? You have fatherlessness. Right? People are not – they're out of shape. The military has dropped their stand, their fitness standards. Mm-hmm. How are we supposed to have a strong military if we're moving the goalpost on fitness standards? Yeah. And to your point, I, I'm honestly – I know that they're probably covering this in other graphics, but DEI right. and all of those virtual virtue signaling, um, you know, What are practices. we supposed to do when yeah. the top brass of our military are priorita- prioritizing equity over excellence? Mm-hmm. I mean, right. And uh, Daily Wire actually did a really, really interesting interview with Bruce Fleming, I believe was the name. He was a former um, – Naval Academy professor and his like little his little um, campaign slogan. He's not running for anything, but his little slogan is from ivory tower to the Pentagon um, because he very quickly started realizing when going to the Naval Academy um, that they were not the, the culture wars were even heightened there, were more wow. heightened. And the scary part about it is that when you are enlisted, or sorry, not enlisted, that's not the right term, but when you're at the Naval Academy, you are in the military. So mm-hmm. they can take 
different actions than a regular student in ROTC at other academies. So what a lot of these students in these academies are experiencing is a heightened version of the culture wars because they can, you know, be prosecuted. They can have legal actions against them. It's it's very scary stuff. And from his perspective, he's like, they're pushing DEI and all of this nonsense to these people that are supposed to be leading our military, that they're too scared to make decisions mm. in, a, in an office building, let mm. alone on the battlefield. So if we are raising and, and having a curriculum of weakness in our military academies, like that's just a, a problem that's going to perpetuate for Millennial. <laughs> Millennia, right. sorry. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, but. you have to look at the resources. There is only so much of the pie. So you could say, well, you know, why is it a big deal if we kind of add DEI into military and all of that? Well, apart from the obvious, it's there's only so many resources. So if you start pulling resources and saying, all right, we're going to put X amount of dollars, we're going to put X amount of personnel right. behind this factor that has nothing to do with our strength and our military capability, well, inherently, that's going to mean that then the military focus on military strength and building and growing and keeping up with our enemies, well, that's going to weaken because we're adding this other factor that people are are saying we have to focus on this. Too. Priorities are totally out of whack, right? Priorities You're basically are totally saying out of whack. politics and, you know, workplace quarter Monday morning quarterbacking is more important than the readiness of our men and women to actually execute and fight on a battlefield. Battlefield. Yeah. Not to quote the best movie in the world, which is Men in Black, but like... <laughs> wow. Oh, I know. Like a hot take. I know. That, that's... That, ooh, really? No, there's a the scene. You're going to understand it in a second. It's I've great. I've seen the movie. It's great. It's, oh, okay, I'm going to get to my point now. Really, though? So it's like there's a, grade when it's already. There's a moment where Will Smith is like an NYPD officer, and he is like in with all of these amazing people with amazing military backgrounds, and this general is like, we want the best of the best. And he kind of mocks it. But like, that's honestly what we need to go back to. We need Mm -hmm. that. We are the best of the best, accepting the best of the best to our academies and to our military, etc. Because right now we have not just these actual threats from our, our enemies that hate us, but we have like just lack of motivation out the wazoo because of these standards and crazy virtue signaling from leaders that honestly, maybe shouldn't be the leaders in charge. So whether or not you like Men in Black doesn't really matter. We just need that (laughs) attitude from that head of MIB. Um, I probably lost a lot of people now. (laughs) (laughs) Kristen's firing up. I love it. Well, when you look at the priorities, it starts at the top, right? You have Mm -hmm. to have leadership in the White House that shows a value for our men and women who serve our country. And what better time for the White House, for our president and our vice president to show their high value for our men and women who serve than this week when we learned that there are two Navy SEALs who were officially pronounced um, dead. A really, really tragic incident where they were carrying out um, a mission off the coast of Somalia and they were boarding a ship. They were boarding a ship that was carrying illicit Iranian-made weapons to Yemen um, when one of the men slipped. He fell into the waves. And, and of course, like like Navy SEALs, um, this just really shows their, their character, how committed these men are to one another. But um, one of the other men jumped in after his friend to try and save his life. And both men, uh, as of Monday, were now presumed to, to have drowned, to have died in those waters. Well, you would think, 
that upon hearing that news that our president, our commander in chief, our commander in chief of our armed forces would have made that the focus, the push across his social media to be honoring these men, their sacrifice, their service to our country, to be praising our military for their bravery. But instead, between Monday and Tuesday, we learned on Monday officially that these men had died between Monday and Tuesday. Um, Biden posted nine times about abortion on his X page in this campaign that both the president and the vice president have been waging around um, the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, talking about the need for, quote unquote, reproductive freedom, but talking about the importance of abortion. He posted nine times on that in that same time period between Monday and Tuesday. He didn't post once on his X page about these two Navy SEALs who lost their lives. And I just have to think, what message Mm -hmm. does that send to our troops? Case in point, right? I mean, how are young men across this country specifically, you know, that may be interested in a tier one operations community like the Navy SEALs, why would they consider enlisting and going through the grueling process Mm -hmm. of, of reaching that honorable position if they don't even have, if their backs are not being supported by their commander in chief? Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's I mean, I think it's utterly disappointing. You know, there's no greater responsibility uh, for the president, for our federal government to fulfill their constitutional responsibility to ensure a strong national defense. And like we're talking about with the index and having this recruiting crisis time and again, this administration has just shown that it's not a priority. Yeah. And the families of these Navy SEALs, I hope I hope and pray that they've been contacted by the administration Mm -hmm. and the top brass, obviously. I'm sure that's happened behind the scenes, but still, publicly, the priorities are clearly out of whack. Yeah. And it shows. I think it's that it's that public face, right? Because yes, the Biden administration, President Biden put out a statement and it, it, it was a very honoring statement, but most people are not going to whitehouse.gov and looking at the statements. The box, yeah, they're right? they they're did going what they on had to exactly. do with the press release. They're going they're the not American going people. Above and beyond. Yeah, the yeah. American people, they're going on X, they're going on Facebook, Instagram and they're seeing what's being said there. That's the public square that we operate in. So for the president to not speak out on those platforms and essentially almost ignore is what it looks like if you were just looking at the president's X page. Yeah, I think for a party that has pretty much trademarked um, thoughts and prayers aren't enough. (sighs) Yeah. Why are we, you know, just doing that for the people literally putting their life on the line every freaking day? Yeah. 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 I mean, these guys are the tip of the tip of the spear, right? Literally. Yeah. I mean, you think about missions like these, Again, like we talked about, like we don't know what's happening behind the scenes, but missions like these are being carried out constantly. Most of the time, the American people never find out. We never know, except when there's a tragedy like this that happens, then we learn. These are usually always guys that don't want credit. Yeah. Right. They're just doing the right thing, doing the hard thing, doing this job that is thankless. Yeah. Truly. Truly. Um, And not asking for anything in return. Yeah. Well, I I got some insight this week, actually, into the life of Navy SEALs and SEAL families by talking with the executive director, Gretchen McIntosh, of an organization 
called Seal Kids. And Crystal, you connected me with this organization. They are awesome. But their whole mission is let's serve families and specifically the kids of Navy SEALs and even more specifically the kids of Navy SEALs who have learning disabilities. Those who, you know, dad is gone sometimes for months at a time on mission. Mom is at home, usually with more than one child often. And when that one, one or two or three of those kids have learning disabilities, that's such a challenge when you have mom who's just at home holding it down. And so what SEAL Kids does is that they come in and they provide uh, tutors and they help to um, pay for those tutors. They connect these families with other uh, educational resources so that that family can thrive and dad can focus on the mission out in the field and not have the weight of my gosh, my kid is failing second grade back home. So I had the opportunity to sit down with Gretchen on the Daily Signal podcast. That interview went live Wednesday morning if you guys want to check it out. She is such a a sweetheart, and you can tell she's doing this work for our Navy SEALs because her heart is fully in it. Like they are not in it for the money. They are in it because their hearts are breaking for these families who are Mm -hmm. struggling, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So we're going to talk a little bit more about them, what they do, and other awesome organizations who are serving our families, who are creating options for school choice in just a minute. But before we get there, if you or someone you know works in the field of education, specifically higher education, listen up. There's a cool opportunity for you, but the window is short. You know, we all know that the academic environment is particularly challenging for faculty who research, publish, teach, or develop programs in areas that explore economic freedom, the dignity of the person, human flourishing, constitutional governance, national sovereignty, and other issues that are really directly related to freedom, to opportunity, to those traditional American values. But funding those opportunities, that can be an even bigger challenge. And that's why the Heritage Foundation has established something called the Freedom and Opportunity Academic Prizes. These prizes recognize and provide financial awards to faculty at higher education institutions. So you can apply to receive uh, one of these awards. The deadline for application is February 1st. Winners will receive a financial award of $15,000 that's specifically in recognition of their past accomplishments the importance of their current work and their future um, their future work that they are doing in the field of academia. So if you or someone you know, again, works in the field of higher education, you have until February 1st to apply for these awards. You can learn more about how to apply. You can find the application uh, at heritage.org slash innovation prize. Again, that's heritage.org slash innovation prize. All right, but let's get talking Again, about school choice, the importance of school choice. We are in National School Choice Week. We've just mentioned the amazing work that SEAL Kids is doing to support our SEALs. I think there's so many organizations that are just bringing resources right to the door, really, of parents in their homes, saying, hey, if you're dissatisfied with your public schools, we have resources for homeschool parents. I think of organizations like PragerU, the Pioneer Institute, just to name a couple that have really jumped on board to say we are in a powerful moment as a nation where education is falling behind. We can do more to step up. And I'm really excited to see that there are so many organizations that have answered this call 
and that we get to recognize them during National School Choice Week. Oh, yeah, totally. And and for those unaware, we are in the midst of National School Choice Week. It runs from January 21st to January 27th. And I'm pretty sure, Crystal, it's your favorite week of the year, right? <laughs> like Christmas. Absolute favorite. <laughs> Absolutely. It's better than Christmas for Crystal. But um, no, it's it's been very interesting to kind of see National School Choice, um, or not National School Choice Week, but just school choice as an issue really develop yeah. over the years. And Gosh. We Five saw- years ago, I bet not that if you said school choice, people would have been like, what? Well, what is that? It's still, you know, in some areas, definitely still a problem. And I think what's really exciting this year is just many, many states have totally embraced school choice with a variety of different uh, policy solutions. And, and I think that's important. They're finally listening to parents um, who want to have options for their children. Um, in a recent poll, actually, from Rasmussen, 77% of voters actually responded that it is more important for high schools to prepare students for jobs and c- careers than to prepare students for college. Mm. So, that the numbers speak for themselves, and I think states are finally starting to, you know, like really put the groundwork to have an infrastructure that reflects the needs and desires of parents. A hundred percent. A lot of people called 2023 the year of education freedom, and I think that 2024 is going to surprise a lot of people. I think there's going to be a lot of state lawmakers that double down on this message of education freedom and empowering parents. Really. At the end of the day, this is about parents getting to customize their child's education from whether it's homeschool, private school, charter school, staying in a traditional public school, supplementing with extra tutoring, different books, different experiences. This is a really unique way for parents to make sure that their kids are having access to the greatest opportunities for them to learn in whatever way is best for them to learn. Every child's different, right? So that customization piece is really critical. And what we consider at Heritage the gold standard for education freedom are those universal education savings accounts. And if you've ever had an HSA, a health savings account, it's it's kind of like that, right, where there's approved things that you can spend that money on, and then parents can go into their accounts. Every state is set up slightly different, but generally speaking, you can go in as a parent If you opt into the program, right, these are not mandatory. All the parents are opting in. Uh, They go into this website or whatever portal and choose what education options they want their kids to have access to. And then the dollars follow that child to that institution, to that tutor, whatever it may be. And this is kind of what we considered the gold standard. There's multiple states that have passed universal uh, ESAs. Uh, there's a lot more coming down the pike that we're super excited about. And then there's a lot of states that aren't quite there yet, but have been edging away at or chipping away at, uh, you know, education freedom policies that we're hopeful will eventually get to that gold standard. I think about my own experience of homeschooling when I was in, um, well, I homeschooled kind of on and off for a number of years, but specifically in elementary school, like, um, third, fourth, fifth grade. And it would have been such a gift, I know, to my parents if they knew our tax dollars are not going to the public schools. Instead, they're going into an account that we can use for books. We can use for curriculum. Um, we can use um, math was not my strongest subject, so I often needed tutors in math. <laughs> we can use to help pay for a tutor for math. So, I mean, it just it takes the pressure off and it goes it goes for families struggling financially. You're moving from a family saying we can't even consider anything but our 
public school in our zip code. That's our only option. That's all we can afford. To all of a sudden, the options box is opened and parents Mm -hmm. can ask the important question of what is going to serve my child's needs best. And I'm not forced to make the decisions about my child's education just based on my bank account. I Mm -hmm. actually now have education freedom, the freedom, the choice to decide what is best for my child. And it's so obvious. This is so obvious. It's so basic. And you all scratch your head and say, how has it taken us this long to get to, get to this here. point? Yeah. 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 We've done so much research at the national level, at the state level, working with a bunch of different state-based think tanks to really dig into polling and research and figuring out what it is that parents really want, right? After covid Everyone's eyes were open to what was going on in their in their child's classrooms, and there was this great awakening of parents, which was fantastic. And what we found, if we kind of boil it all down to some themes, is parents really wanted quality education for their kids. They wanted respect from school administrators, school boards. We saw all of that blow up with, with parents asking questions at school board meetings. They want transparency in what their kids are being taught, what's in the classrooms, what's in the libraries, what the curriculum is. And they want choice. They want to have that control component to be able to have the freedom to say, I don't necessarily want my kid to go to this building that they're designated to go to based off of our address. Mm-hmm. I want my kid to go to this other opportunity. And so those those are kind of the four key pillars that, that we found again and again resonate with parents across the political spectrum, right? This is These are our kids. This is the next generation. This is not about politics. This is about empowering parents truly to direct their child's future. Mm-hmm. And a, a retort we often hear from people that aren't for this issue, I feel like, is, well, this is just a way for you know wealthy families to fund you know their kids' ability to go to private school. But the, I love the polls today for some reason. <laughs> and um, there has been a, another poll from National School Choice Week, actually, themselves, that showed that while more wealthy families have conversations about school choice, more um, families, less, you know, fortunate families actually follow through and end up sending their kids Mm -hmm. to other schools outside of, you know, what the public school Mm -hmm. um, option is for them, which I I found very interesting. I don't have the exact numbers, but it just kind of shows you again that when you educate, ironically, when you educate (laughs) um, American parents on the options available to them, um, they 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 will take that information and they will make the best decision for their child. So I'm truly banging my head against the wall all the time when I hear that initial feedback that you mentioned, Kristen. Like, yeah. oh, it's just for the rich kids to go to private school, etc. I'm like, the rich kids are already going to the best <laughs> They're schools. In, exactly. They already have school choice because their parents have resources, yeah. right? What about middle class, low income kids who don't have those resources? Truly, these programs, I mean, we've seen in Florida and Arizona some you know, it, these programs haven't been around long enough to have really good, you know, a good depth of data to, to pull from. But yeah. we've already seen with kids that have had access to school choice that education outcomes increase. Yeah. For yeah. low-income students. Like, it's signed, sealed, delivered. Yeah. You know, the any of the arguments on the other side are about defending the teachers' unions and the powers that be from having a grasp over our children and, and not about educational outcomes. Yeah. Like, don't believe that lie. Yeah. yeah. Especially when we have all those proficiency and math and oh, reading things right. that have been way so under- dismal at best. Absolutely dismal, terrible. Dismal. But so um, sad. 
For those of you that maybe are curious about what's going on this week, um, there are 68 state flagship events um, in 45 states. And then um, there just... 34 school fairs, so that's actually giving you the opportunity to kind of understand um, what options are available to you and your state. And if you go to schoolchoiceweek.com, you can find all the information on all of those events. Amazing. So check it out. Check it out. All right. Well, shifting gears a little bit, but still talking about another kind of alternative, but this one for adults and related to work. So <laughs> That was a great transition. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I think one of the things that COVID did was it, like we talked about, it raised the alarm on education, what needed to change. It raised awareness about the need for school choice. And then for adults, it also shifted how we work. And uh, many, many jobs have stayed fully remote. Some parents are, you know, maybe choosing, hey, my kid can you know, do more flexible education or have a program where they're learning online often because I'm working from home, things like that. So we're still seeing that many jobs have said, hey, you know, we're not going to pay for our buildings anymore. But the question is still looming because it, honestly, working from home in such a, a massive capacity where so many offices have done it, it really hasn't been happening very long. I mean, we have a few years under our belt, but the data is still a little foggy on are people as productive in the working from home as they are working in a building where everyone's working together? Well, Axios, they just released a piece this week looking at a couple different papers that ask this question of does working from home make you more or less productive? Now, before I read the report, my guess is that people were more productive working from home, but probably less creative was my assessment. Mm -hmm. Did you all have guesses before you looked at what they found? I still haven't looked at what they found, if I'm oh, being totally honest. All right. So I well, think my I will live, educate you in a My second. lifetime, though, is, yeah, you're yeah. more productive at home, probably more creative with people. I concur. Crystal, what do you think? Ugh. I really just want to argue for the sake of arguing, but, like, I agree with you guys. <laughs> I agree with y'all. <laughs> you are so mad. No, I'm not mad. I love it. I love it. I don't really have strong job. opinions on work from home. Fair. At least I didn't think I did until this moment. <laughs> like Maybe I do. Well, it was interesting. It's actually, I'm going to say in, ahead of time, it's actually a little bit anticlimactic what Axios found. So Axios reported again on two papers. The first paper was a report from the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, and it looked at 43 industries in the private sector to see if more remote-friendly occupations saw increased productivity during the pandemic period specifically. And they found no significant change. So hmm. I was like, oh, okay, things stayed the same, which is fascinating because hmm. before COVID, people were very convinced that if you let everyone work from home, productivity would go way down. And I, I think it's encouraging. It shows, you know, as Americans, we're pretty self-motivated. We get the job done. I feel like that's a good commentary on culture and reality on people that we were able to maintain productivity levels. But then moving to the second paper, this is a working paper from economists at the New York Fed, University of Virginia, and Harvard. And this paper did a deep dive specifically into one Fortune 500 company. They didn't release the name of that specific Fortune 500 company. 
But they were able to kind of dive into how this company works across different departments and see has productivity increased or decreased. So they looked specifically at software engineers in this Fortune 500 company, and they found that working in the office created more mentorship, but working closely together decreased productivity. And I was like, okay, this makes sense that, you know, you have those younger folks coming in and they're asking a lot of questions of those that have been there longer. So for those who are... 5, 10, 15, 20 years in, yeah, they're probably going to get less done because they have the people that have only been there two months, a year, two years, interrupting them, asking them questions. So that productivity level goes down, but you have that mentorship piece of bringing up the next generation. So then the study found that the company actually started hiring more people with experience as they were remote because that training element, that mentorship element wasn't happening. And I could see this as being, I don't know that we've fully seen this play out, but I could see this being a challenge for new college grads, that Mm, organizations that are so remote, they don't want to hire someone that they know really needs some hands-on and uh, and dedicated training, needs that mentorship, and they want someone that can come in instead that already has five to ten years of experience, knows what they're doing, and can just be given tasks and get them done. So at the end of the day, I'm like, the real losers in this, sorry, might be might be new college grads. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's not surprising that you need some level of hands-on experience. We just talked about education, freedom, and, and school choice because a lot of the solutions out there that um, – the learning options out there that are, are – they're hands-on. Like, mm-hmm. frankly, they're hands-on. So, um, and as someone recently, not, I'm going to say that because I want to make myself feel good, but <laughs> um, semi-recently went through the whole college transition to the workforce, um, you know, it. I learned a lot more in those few, first few months than yeah. I probably did in a full semester. Sorry, mom and dad, but um, that's it's the reality, the reality. Of it. Yeah. yeah. No, so it is. I think it, I'm not surprised. Um, it'll be interesting to see see future studies on this. And I I think it would be interesting to know what Fortune 500 company this is. I would assume it might be, you know, a Google, Facebook, Coca-Cola. It seemed like it was something in the tech space was my best guess, but wasn't totally sure. But like a Coca-Cola would probably be a better, you know, like a traditional Mm -hmm. big name, um, not tech focused company. That would be more interesting just because of the variety of positions out there. That's actually very true. Yeah. And some of them can't be remote. Like, yeah, really. Uh, I mean, there are, there's definitely pros and cons, right, from working from home. And I think we all felt that during COVID. I mean, there was beauty in getting to be home and spend more time with family. And there was a challenge of you had new people joining your team. And I was like, I don't I don't really know this person. They're like, <laughs> how tall are they? <laughs> well, and it's just like there's no relational rapport working yeah. on projects with them. And I felt for those people that started, it was like they don't know our team. They don't know our culture. Maybe – you know, in your like team group chat, people are making jokes that refer to things that happened six months ago. And you know, yeah. they just have no context for like personalities. And so, yeah. For any of us that are extroverted and social, <laughs> all of us, the work of thing, oh, it's hard. I don't yeah. know. I mean, there's times where I'm like, oh, yes. Okay. Friday, I need to work from home. I'm going to like hammer out all this writing and tasks that require a lot of focus. And yeah. I think that if you're in an environment where you have that flexibility, that's really great and helpful for, you know, workflow yeah. and process. Um, but for the most part, I'm like, eh, I, I like being in the office. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just, it's a fact that I don't think you can build a company culture 
with right. everybody not yeah. together. Yeah, and I actually, at the end of the day, I think people truly crave that. Yeah. Right? Oh, 100%. Like, 100%. We're, we're community-driven animals. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, if you I don't think have that even at work, you know, where are you One of it? the major reasons why people leave or choose to stay in an organization is boss and coworkers. Do they mm-hmm. like the people that they're surrounded by? And so for, especially for people who are extroverted, you remove all the people. And I think there could be some serious problems with retention. Yeah, totally. Uh, as someone that actually, I, for over a year, maybe a year and a half, worked fully remote job, um, it was a totally different experience than what I have experienced at Heritage. I remember it being incredibly daunting following COVID, following that year and a half of just being fully remote to have to come into the office every single day. Very daunting. Maybe had a breakdown or two in the Aww. car just because you have to wake up super early yeah. and like, I it like was, to work it out. It was an adjustment getting back to it for, for sure. sure. But at the end of the day, I feel like my best days are when I'm in the office surrounded by like the people I love to work with and, mm-hmm. and friends um, that I've made along the way. So I, I think for sure the human element of work would be lost if if it was fully remote here. Yeah. Maybe I'll put a poll on Instagram and yes. see what you guys think. Ooh. Which one's better, remote work or in the office? Let us know. But stay tuned because up next we crown our problematic woman of the week. Virginia Allen here. I want to tell you all about a great way you can stay in the know on all the news The Daily Signal covers. Social media. The Daily Signal has an active presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are constantly posting news stories, clips from interviews, videos, and more across all our social platforms. Follow The Daily Signal on social media so you can get all the latest content from reels on Instagram to video clips on Facebook and political commentary on Twitter. Now, it is that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic women of the week. And the crown goes to Patrice Anwuka. Patrice is the director for the Center for Economic Opportunity at the Independent Women's Forum. And currently, she's fighting against the Biden administration's most recent attack on independent contractors. For context, the attack in question really comes down to the Biden's labor secretary, ironically a woman named Julie Sue, rolling back a Trump-era change to the Fair Labor Standards Act to be consistent with judicial president, she claims. In reality, though, what all of this jargon means is they are increasing the red tape for workers to be classified as independent contractors. Now, why are people like Patrice calling this act a declaration of war on women? Some 64 million Americans actually freelance, and more than half of those are women. So obviously, the repercussions of this rule, that mm-hmm. essentially what it's doing is it's a survey, they're changing the the necessary uh, answers for a survey. And like I said, just adding red tape to the whole, you're not an independent contractor unless you meet these exact standards. Mm. Um, And in a time where we just talked about, there are changing needs, changing abilities. Um, The, you know, workforce is totally changing. We're going back to, you know, pre-COVID metrics. Uh, It's just not feasible for women who are trying to, you know, do it both, be a mom and also contribute to society. So critical for moms to be able to have the flexibility and be their own bosses and be those independent contractors that can choose their hours and be with their kids during the day. And then from like 10 p.m. to 1 a.m., you know, crank out (laughs) some work, (laughs) whatever they have to do. And it's beautiful that they've had that option. And it's for, for an administration that claims to be so pro-women, this is showing their hand of, well, no, you're not. If you're going to make it even more difficult 
for independent contractors who we know so many of whom are women to actually fall into that category and do what they need to do and to have the flexibility that they need to have in order to serve their families. Well, thank you, Patrice, for fighting for women and mothers and future mothers and mm-hmm. grandmas, whatever, whomever is an independent contractor. Thanks for having their back. We appreciate the hard work. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, with that, Crystal, thanks for being with us today. Always happy to be here. So fun. Happy School Choice Week, everybody. With that, we're going to leave it there for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you like to listen. Look up problematic women hit subscribe leave us a five-star rating and review we so appreciate when you guys do that it means so much to us and if you are celebrating national school choice week make sure to use the hashtag school choice or nscw for national school choice week i think that's perfect yeah (laughs) excellent we got it all right well have a great week everybody Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.